I'm DJ. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to One Shot Saturn, a TTRPG podcast where we seek out new ways to tell your stories through different systems and games. Uh, Today, we're talking about villains. Yeah, see, villains have a problem in a lot of TTRPG games, and that is what I like to call the young adult novel adaption problem. They are two-dimensional often, and because of that, they can completely make or break your campaign. I think that when you look at the classics, and we're going to get a little bit more into this in a second. Your classic D&D villain in a lot of ways, and I don't know if it's full classic, right? Because he wasn't in the earliest content, but probably the most popular, well-known villain in D&D these days is Strahd von Zarevich, a.k.a. Dracula, right? Yeah. He is distinct from Dracula, honestly, in a lot of ways. There's a really, like, it's a very interesting lore once you get into it. But him as a villain, even as he is written in the original publish publication of Curse of Strahd, he is both a deeply compelling villain or just a weird creep. Yeah. And that in and of itself is the problem of these books that are often published amongst many systems is what right. makes these villains interesting and compelling and worth pursuing and defeating or whatever trying to save even is them actually having some emotional depth or complexity and making sense you look at the villains right. in marvel and who is the biggest most interesting oh maybe they were right villain in marvel thanos exactly people were like thanos yeah. was right because we understood him <laughs> and like we like yeah. got into it and though he has deeply flawed logic it made sense it was interesting it was compelling and we cared and it was right. built up to for a long time where he was teased. So that's just the issue that is in a lot of media, but definitely is reflective in tabletop games where I want this to be a compelling villain. They're evil and they're bad and you should kill them. Exactly. And the big thing with Strahd is as written, he can fall really flat for a lot of audiences. Mechanically. I'm currently running. Yeah, or, mechanically or story. too. Story, mechanically, so many ways. And it's it's sad because he's such a classic. It's the most popular 5th edition module. It's the most popular non-5th edition module, right? Some of the older ones. I'm currently running a version of Curse of Strahd, an abridged version as an intro into a campaign. And reading him as written outside of other source material in the book Curse of Strahd is largely just, this guy's kind of a creep. And he's a loser who hangs out in his basement uh, until unsuspecting adventurers fall into Barovia. And it's really funny because in the campaign, my wife's one of the players in the campaign. And then I've got some other people uh, that are all complete strangers. And they've all came to the exact same conclusion of this guy's the worst and he's a loser. So what do I do? I play into that a little bit, right? to that's their vision of Strahd. Um, However, other people have done it differently. Uh, Our guest that we're going to be introducing later specifically runs a uh, gender bend, really gender, like, yeah, yeah, amazingly gender bent, like version of Strahd that is much deeper and more complex. So how do you avoid the Strahd von Zorovich problem? Well, first off, you said Zorovich. I've always heard of von Zorovich. I recently listened to all of the Strahd books. Yeah, they say Zorovich. People can be wrong. Okay, <laughs> they can be. They can be. But you know what? I like it 
better because it sounds more Eastern European. I disagree. Um, <laughs> and you're wrong. <laughs> and Zerovich. that's all. No. Uh, but anyways, how do you avoid the Strad Strad uh, Zerovich? Just, let's just say problem. Strad so I don't get upset. That's just, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> so I would um, say some of the big ways, yeah. like I, I briefly mentioned, is getting into the motivations and making sure that without spelling them out explicitly to the players, making sure that this villain isn't one note, isn't just, okay, big bad guy wants to kill us for whatever reason. One, it might not make yeah. any sense in the story that villain is paying any attention to you. With Strahd, a good way to try and play it that a lot of people have talked about, and, and to be clear, this is not a how to run Strahd episode because there's a million amazing products that you can go along with your oh, Curse of Strahd 5th edition game. Yeah, and this is just a great example for us to talk around. But the idea is Strahd could be portrayed much more interestingly as a like a villain that's like playing with its food. Now, that's a common right. way that it's talked about. And making sure, like I've heard it described where you want to make your Strahd or your villain in this very present giving mm -hmm. players taunting them showing up as an apparition a ghost of themselves almost or messing with them or giving them weird hallucination and basically showing right. how actively this villain disrespects the players some settings the villain is going to have so much more of a presence than yeah. in curse of strad curse of strad is what i like to call uh fifth editions izakai you as a character are living your life somewhere else and then all of a sudden you find yourself in the mists of barovia yeah and because of that you are a stranger in a strange land and you have no idea who strad von zerovich zerovich is <laughs> and that's that's frustrating right because okay cool what is my connection to this place other than the fact that we can't leave yeah in other campaigns right yeah you are setting up your villains. Oh, I heard about this guy. Yeah. Right. It's, oh, that name keeps popping up. That's really familiar. It's, it's, it works better <laughs> when right. your players have connection, right? If the characters they are playing uh, inhabit the world, yeah. right? Then they're going to have heard of these, most likely these big bads in some way or another, or at least the things that they've done. So I think when you look at yeah. the Strahd and the Barovia problem in a lot of ways, again, like the setup for the campaign is like, they give you a couple options, but the short of it is you're Narnia'd away to bad Narnia. Exactly. You get whisked away through the mists and you find yourself there. I hate that beginning so much because if yeah. you're literally starting there for session one, any backstory that your player just wrote, unless you did matter. a lot of extra work, does not matter to the story that's being mm -hmm. told. So that kind of brings me to the next point. And again, we could do a whole Strahd episode where we go through advice of specific stuff you could do. <laughs> I really don't want to get into that because it's already been made in a lot of ways. But the point is, I think my next point, which is making the villain matter to the player's backstory and individual goals and motivations, not just like exactly. dealing with they're evil. They want to do bad stuff. I kill them. It's too flat. People don't feel invested. What they do feel invested is if you actually weave the story of the player yeah. deeply in with that villain or like you said, start 
making them pop up in the story that's actively playing out exactly. that they're already invested yep. in, rather than just yeah. saying, big bad, go kill. But that actually brings me to uh, my next uh, thing, is it can't just be the villain, yeah. right? You're running around a big empty space and it's just the villain. Like, even Strahd has some lieutenants. There's not a lot of good spots in the book that they just show up. Yeah. Really? But really, if you are building this campaign and you are building out this villain, they need to have a hierarchy, right? Yeah. They need to have your villain at the top, their generals underneath, the lieutenants underneath that, or however, yeah, whatever know, the military I, structure. Yeah. <laughs> but, and then oh, their little gremlins below that, yeah. like they, it's a hierarchy. And I think your players, in order to really understand the gravitas of the villain, you really need to essentially have them battle their way through this hierarchy, right? Yeah. Maybe that big villain doesn't know who the hell they are. Yeah. And that's fine and makes sense, especially for some villains that are going to be big corporate entities or they're going to be like tyrannical regimes. Why would they know who a level one right. adventure is in any manner? Yeah. And so the people that your characters, your player characters, you as a player are going to be coming up against are, oh, here's this N different real low level guys who happen to control a small of the world and then you move up and as your characters go and gain notoriety the bad guy knows who they are and they yeah. start gain their attention and that is going to form a player attachment so much better to the villain because they're working their way up they've never met him they've heard about him yeah and all of a sudden oh that villain's heard about you uh, yep. and that's pretty important. However, there can also be sympathetics in the ranks, Yep. right? People who well, maybe they're just in it for a little bit of cash. And maybe if somebody's going to offer them a little bit more cash, or maybe yeah. they can be flipped, you gain allies. They might not as a be a zealot that's completely aligned with every bit and bit of purpose that this big bad has. And that kind of goes to like the segue to the next thing, which is I want to talk about briefly about alignment, but also like using tropes in your villain. The idea of alignment, it goes way, way back again, not an episode about alignment, but right. the short of it is if they are truly an evil villain, right? Which they don't have to be depending on how you view alignment. Yeah. But you've got three, three interesting expressions of that. You have a lawful evil, you've got a neutral evil and you've got a chaotic evil. Each of these are yeah. expressions of how they respond to organizational structure, how they respond to the laws of the land and their own personal laws and their own code of how they operate. That is an interesting and worthy pers of, of yeah. a question to ask about your villain, whether or not you use the alignment system. You should ask, how do they really like work within systems? How have they built systems? And do they respect them whatsoever? You've exactly. got the classic tropes within D&D. You've got the demon, which all it wants to do is devour and murder and have fun <laughs> being just ooey gooey, yucky right. evil. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the Asmodeus, the, devil, yeah. the king of the devil, you know, that sits on his throne yeah. that really has a view where it's much more like Thanos. So he's like, I believe that I can rule the cosmos better. And first I want to deal with 
the fact that I actually hate the demons too. Those guys are terrible. <laughs> they will ruin the cosmos. Yep. And I'm better than the celestials that don't agree with me on stuff. And I'm better for you, actually. Yeah. And I think that makes Asmodeus a much more compelling villain. Right? Truly. He can be an ally. Exactly. Because, so, yeah. When it comes 100%. to the tropes you look at, honestly, first off, as a GM, if you're not stealing, you're not doing it right. Let me be very clear. That is not in publication. <laughs> yes. That's not in publication. That is not when you're making money off of it. But when you're running a game for your friends, feel free to steal stuff. Just yeah. put a spin on it. Try something new with it. You know, steal from a Thanos. Like, that's the sympathetic kind of villain trope that you can play with. The other tropes you can play with are more similar to Strahd, where he's playing with his food. You can do other stuff where the villain is deeply just misunderstood. Again, the sympathetic villain thing. But to the point where the, the party might actually be ready for this if you do it too well, the party might decide to join the bad guy if you make them compelling and interesting compelling enough. enough. Because the yeah. bad guy can truly just be an opposing faction that might actually come into alignment with player purposes and goals. And Definitely. I would highly recommend looking at playing, if you haven't run a faction, like a villain or antagonist in your game, I highly recommend it. And we'll, we'll get to it in a little bit, but we're going to be yeah. interviewing Friday, who did an entire book about a faction of villains. And it's like faith-themed. Yeah. It's super cool. But I recently started to dive into playing with a shadow organization. I say recently, I've been writing about the shadow organization for literally a decade, but I've run it a couple times. And uh, it's this organization within a sci-fi setting that I'm sure you'll hear talk about more. But they are truly a shadowy organization in a corporatocracy, cyberpunky space opera setting where their goals are, frankly, like, I, I don't know about noble, right? But they make sense. And that's interesting and compelling. Their goals are very, the progression of humanity is the most important thing. And our evolution and our development in the stars is deeply important. And then what they do is it's the whole ends justify the means. And that's what makes them right. an interesting, compelling villain. They're also a secret organization. So what that's allowed me to do, and DJ has been playing in this game, is this organization, Eupraxia, is one, the name is a not common term. So it's not a villain that you can just meet an NPC and be like, we're here to defeat Eupraxia. They're like, who? And they're <laughs> playing puppeteer of all these different corporations in the galaxies and trying to make a certain goal occur. And right. the players have to really, they had to come to the point where they go, that goal is not a worthy goal and therefore needs to be stopped. And frankly, they only know a couple of the members that are within this organization. And that functions as like the lieutenant sort of structure. You start right. to seed when you're running like a shadowy organization, start seeding low level people that only know so much about the... <clears throat> the architecture of that organization, that faction. But then that lets the players fall into a mystery and start to try and unravel that sweater. Yep. And it's a lot of fun to do that. I highly recommend it. I was actually thinking about this a little bit earlier, but one of the best villains out there of most medias is Dr. Doom. And it's he's, he rules over Latveria. He's got his whole thing. But there are Marvel, like, what ifs, there are situations where Dr. Doom wins 
and the world is a better place. Oh, he was right. And I love that. So that's kind of one of my inspirations yeah. for my villain, who is a Ravenloft villain that I created in a homebrew. Uh, and it is a dreadlord named Captain Blackheart. And Captain Blackheart is using the sympathetic iconoclast. And with the sympathetic iconoclast trope, intentions, at least in the beginning, were pure, right? It was, I see the injustice and I want the world to be a better place. But being just a person, he had no way to do it, right? And so essentially what ended up happening was he sold his soul to the devil, which is in Ravenloft, it's the, the dead gods, the, the dark powers. gods, the powers that be, uh, in order to accomplish his goal, right? And so he still has that goal as a villain, but like it is ends justify the means all the way. Yeah. And because of that, people get hurt and people are like no this is bad we need to stop him uh and it's it's funny because by stopping him you're defending the the structures the power structures that existed before even if you disagree with them yeah because unfortunately this guy who has lost his mind no longer has the ability for empathy for the people that are going to be in his way. And yeah, I think I think that's far more compelling to go, I actually I, listen, bud, I agree. Well, maybe we should take care of the poor better. Maybe we should uh, not even maybe we should do all these things. <laughs> right. Um, however, it's really hard to help them if you've barreled over them and they don't exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and like it's fun with not to spoil too much in that campaign because I got to play in it, but it's fun to play with the trope of person with good intentions basically gets the ability to enact. So like the whole ascension to godhood, I ran it in another campaign a couple of years back and I played with the idea of an individual encountering that level of divine power and it actually destroyed him. Like it, it ripped him yeah. apart into multiple people. And he became three different entities and those different entities were different. was me exploring the idea of what is the bad version of like creativity and like being a creative individual. And it's really just control and oppression and tyranny. And it was this yeah. idea of I will create in my image. And then there was a, an NPC that ended up alongside the party that was more of that pure expression. and. The end of the campaign was not to just kill the bad guy. They actually united this triune individual back together. And he was a normal, flawed person at the end of it with the scope of what he had done as a villain. And exactly. that was, I love that was the end of it rather than just, we have to kill big bad guy. It was like, no, yep. we need to fix this person. <laughs> and yeah, along the way, we killed the bad guy, right? The corrupt version of him is no longer a thing. But like, he's still here and he regrets exactly. what he did. And yeah, there's just so many ways to run it. I would highly, if I were to sum up our advice on villains, look at their motivations, see why they're doing what they're doing and make it make sense. That's the yep. shortest version of it. Exactly. Um, give them friends too. One mechanically, <laughs> that's literally mini bosses. If you yeah. take like the Mega Man kind of version of it, who are all of the robot masters? And why are they following him? One, that, that's going to let you think exactly. about the motivations again. And two, it gives players a way to discover more lore, 
when they take down these individuals, maybe they convert these individuals to their side. It's there's so much there when you build out the ranks of your antagonist beyond just a singular individual with borderline divine power. Exactly. And that kind of brings me to my next point, right, is there are so many systems. So, for example, we started in uh, 3.5 Pathfinder uh, and then into 5th edition. The system you use really can lend to how scary your villain is, right? 5th edition, there's, I won't say it's a problem because some players and some game masters really like it, but there is a power creep yeah. where all of a sudden you have just broken the game. And it can happen early, way too early. <laughs> like, like level 10, you are outpacing a normal character at level 20. Um, just because you've optimized certain things and you've taken certain feats and all of or this. Or the GM accidentally gave out too many magic items and never done that before. Never done that before. <laughs> and because of that, like, it's it can be really hard to balance because, yeah. like, as a game master... Like, it's hard to justify telling your player, no, you can't use that game mechanic that is vanilla to the game. Yeah, it's in right? there. And so we have been on the search, and that's one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast in general. We have been on the search for other systems uh, in order to expand and grow upon our writing, uh, our enjoyment of the games we're running. And currently, we are on a system called Cypher System. Um, and something I really love about Cypher System is... It's very narrative driven and a system that is very narrative driven is great for villains. And one of those options that you have in Cypher system is the game master intrusion. You'll Be hear anything. DJ talk about it a couple more times. A few more it's times. It's his favorite mechanic. <laughs> it's such a good in- a mechanic. It's great. It's, it mechanically allows me to say yes and or no but, right? And... It's nice because you know, it's one of those things that your players can push back on. Yeah. But you, as the villain, if you have a villain interaction and you say GM intrusion, like yeah. they get there's, excited. There's weight behind it. Yeah. <laughs> and let me just throw this in there. I remember having someone in our party that we'll leave unnamed who is just really talented at putting together kind of min-maxed characters not for the sake of itself he genuinely invests in the story of what he's building and he is not just a number cruncher i just want to beat the dm kind of guy but he loves finding synergies and he's done a very good job of it which has made my life hell Um, yeah and it's impressive because he'll do it on accident he had a wizard and we were fighting like (laughs) yanogu the hyena demon lord in hell and he just disrespected the crap out of you. And <laughs> there was so much. I was like, he's going to die right this second. He was playing like a blade singer, I think. And I was like, he's dead. Like, I wanted to do certain things in the system in fifth edition that, and I remember doing something that we had, him and I had to talk about it afterwards because in a way, I, for the sake of the narrative and what made sense, I really took away his agency in that fight. The rules told him he should be able to nuke this boss and he should have been able to. Right. I didn't do it the right way because I was trying to drive a narrative that was compelling and interesting and logical for everyone. 
I, but I didn't feel supported by the rules to have a reaction or a legendary action that really let me push back at all and have almost like a, an equal amount of say in the conversation of what story was being told. And him and I have not had an adversarial GM and player relationship, but because of that, he was like annoyed about what happened. And, and it's right flow, right? It, because exactly like within the rules. And when you look at what Cypher does, short version of an intrusion, like a GM intrusion is just saying, I'm going to do a thing and the rules back up that I do this weird thing. It's basically and, introducing a complication or a plot twist or a weird moment. And I'm going to reward you if you let it happen. Yep. And I'm going to, and there is a way for the player to say no, but it's literally transactional. If, you, if yeah. the player accepts the intrusion, they receive experience points, which they can use to level their characters up. If they want to say no to that scary intrusion, they have to pay you with an experience point. And it is a baked in mechanic that is, right. is already there that the players know as a rule, like I didn't feel supported by in fifth edition and that there right. was a baked in rule in front of people when they play Cypher to be able to say yes or no, or I'm not feeling that, or the GM to go, I want this narrative moment to happen because I think it's important to the campaign, the story we're telling, or making a better session for the play. It's not just about your story, but it's about a narrative <laughs> moment. <laughs> no, it's not about you. And it's just, it's rule support for those moments. And it's, it makes for exactly. really compelling villain encounters because players like to disrespect your villains. Sorry, GMs. Yeah. They like, to, like, it doesn't matter how creepy or scary you're going to make your villain. The player's going to look at them smugly and be like, you're an idiot. Cause they want to be cool and interesting and compelling and yeah. the hero of the story. You probably have the best villain monologue lined up and i'm sorry but in most systems you are not going to get it you're out. about to get a fireball is what's going to happen like exactly unless you have a way of essentially taking away full player agency for that few minutes that you yeah. are uh, playing sorry <laughs> and players hate getting time stopped so that the gm can monologue it's not a good way to do it like it's a way to do it I'm sure that certain tables that'll work fine. But in general, the goal should not be how do I take away player agency so that I can get my narrative moment off? It should be an expectation like the intrusion, right? Where yep. there are moments where narrative is really important for this encounter and certain things are going to happen. And I can affect those things. But also the reality of a like a game that has any amount of realism should be I cannot do everything that I want. Exactly. Yep. 100%. I, it's, it's one of those things where it's like players will never take your villains as seriously as you do. Yeah. Um, because like they want to be the heroes of the story, right? They're the party. They know they're the main characters and that's, I get it. And that's okay. Like it's finding a way to work around that. And I think uh, or with our next it, guests. right? Not necessarily or, around. Sorry to ruin your segue. Oh, with it, no, no. But I think that you want you <laughs> want to work with, like, with that idea, yeah. right? Like exactly. you want to give them compelling reasons to be invested, or like to the fear moment. Like you really yep. got to work on them being scared of that villain and setting up stakes where that actually feels possible, rather than just being like, exactly. they're cool, they're scary. And this is basically my player character as the DM. That's, it's just not the way to do it. So. Exactly. 
And I think <laughs> as I return to the segue, segue back to the segue. There I think go. that our next guest really found a good way to handle that in the supplement book that they wrote called The Vineyard. Uh, the Vineyard is a setting book, but it is also a villain book where she has laid out great and compelling villains. Our next guest is professional game master uh, Friday Strout, and we're super excited to have her on. We're joined by Friday. Friday is an accomplished professional game master with over 700 games ran on Start Playing Games and a game designer with a successfully funded project called The Vineyard, a producer, a former theater kid. Uh, Friday, thank you uh, for joining us on podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I guess I started role playing like when I was a teenager and it was mostly text based online stuff, um, which is also gender exploration for me, by the way, because I always ended up playing uh, women and I'm a, I'm a trans femme. So um, that was kind of an interesting, like I could be myself on the internet time for me. Um, and then I went completely the opposite direction and like joined the military for 13 years. And then I found out, oh yeah, I'm a queer. And then I got out and then, and now this is what I do. So that's how I started in RPGs. But when I was getting out and I was deciding, um, hey, how do I no longer work for the man? How do I no longer, um, right. you know, get bossed around in a way that I don't like? Um, I should work for myself and start my own business. So I was looking at like, what do I actually want to do? Because I hadn't asked myself that in a really long time. Um, I got out when I was like 32, 33. Um, and I'm 36 now, 36. Um, yeah, I got out when I was 33. And um I was looking on the interwebs and I saw D&D um, being played on the interwebs and I was like, that looks cool. So I tried out, um, auditioned for like an actual play show on this channel called HP to XP. Um, it's kind of defunct now. It's no, it's no longer in operation, but that's where I got my start. I was just playing this, um, this half drow character um, who was like an allegory for my trans experience before I realized I was trans, of course. And then um, from there, I started um, to get into GMing. Um, I started to run games. I ran 5th edition for the first time um, in 2020. Uh, and I just went from there. I ran like a one shot and then I started running a homebrew game. And that homebrew game was actually the basis for the Vineyard RPG or what would become the Vineyard RPG um, like a year or two later. I, I produced a couple of shows. Um, uh, from there, I pitched them to uh, Chelsea Dot Steverson, who's now the marketing director at Cobalt Press. Prior to that, they were uh, the um, the stream production uh, producer, the stream producer at that time, the content person. Um, and they accepted my pitches. And then we ran um, an Empire of the Ghouls campaign, uh, the official playthrough on Cobalt Press's channel. Um, and then I ran a Thrones and Bones playthrough on Cobalt Press's channel and my own channel. And uh, working with Lou on their Kickstarter game, uh, their setting, was actually really fun. It was, um, it's a Viking setting. And I had a lot of fun sort of exploring that and then learning to produce a show, run a show. Um, it was a nice transition period for me to really figure out what I wanted to do because I first started to get into entertainment because I enjoyed uh, the role-playing aspect. But then I came to find out like, maybe like six to eight months 
really into that where I was putting the bill for a lot of these produced projects, that there's really no money in it, uh, especially not until like you get much larger and it's not sustainable. It wasn't sustainable for me to be producing at that level and still be supporting uh, my family and paying the bills, so on and so forth. So I started to take a hard look at like, what do I actually care about? Like, what do I want to try doing? And so I got um, a marketing job actually uh, with One Night Straw, which is a supplement uh, on D DM skills. Um, it's a bestseller now, um, not because of me. Um, I was the marketer for it though, uh, but it was uh, just a fantastic game. Uh, one of the, uh, it won an any for best ebook um, that year. And the co-writers became friends of mine, Adam and Jake. Um, and then uh, the editor, M, became my co-creator for Vineyard later on. Um, and that's how I met M. M, who's the co-writer on Icewind Dale, Run the Frostmaiden, who now works for, uh, works on Cortex products. Uh, they work at Direwolf Digital. Um, so they're working with Camp Banks now, um, which is why I lost M on the project, because they had a non-compete. So um, it was uh, it was nice to have M for a year. I had M for a whole year in which I could learn all this stuff um, from M. But yeah, uh, I kind of went off the off on a tangent. Um, somewhere good? in there, somewhere in there, I was a content manager for that Bronze Girl, which was a great opportunity for oh, me, okay. and that's how because um, I initially pitched Bronze to run the actual play for One Night Strong, and just so that we had like something on the internet that people could search, because YouTube is used as a search engine oftentimes for these products for people to see how they're run, and uh, Bronze put together a show, um, and I kind of just made that connection. And afterward, I just asked Bronze, I was like, hey, do you need someone? You look like you do everything. Do you need someone that need? do you need a hand? And Bronze was like, hey, I was just about to start looking for somebody. And I was like, hell yeah. And I just did some content management, really light stuff. I wasn't, and I just want to stress, I didn't do nothing that Bronze couldn't do herself. Bronze is one of the most intelligent, funny, just capable people in the entertainment industry. Um, I learned a lot from Bronze. Uh, it was a really fascinating and um, it basically ex really accelerated my growth uh, and my maturity in the industry in a lot of different ways. Um, and one, at one point, I, uh, was, I only did that for about eight months because it came to a certain point where I was also just starting as a pro GM on Start Playing Games. Mm -hmm. I guess the people can't see my... Uh, shirt, but I'm wearing a, an SPG because I'm shilling for the company right now. <laughs> of course, we um, do so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a great platform. So, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I was working for Bronze for that time, and then I honestly I just got too busy um, running games, and um, so I had to tell Bronze like, uh, you know, I I really love working for you, but I I can't afford to work for you right now, um, because a, a lot of people don't understand as well. Like it's it's one of those things like people think that streamers are rich, really just a few of them are rich. Uh, even a full-time streamer is just like paying the bills and like is setting stuff aside. And, uh, you know, even with a great deal of success, like there's not too much money in streaming unless you have built up your platform over a long, long period of time. And when you look at people like Bronze, they've been streaming since 2015, 2017. A, a long time ago and it started out as a part-time became a full-time 
And with the up and downs of freelancing and some of the other things that bronze is doing now, I mean, like bronze is just soaring. So I'm very, I'm always really happy to see uh, what bronze is doing lately. And they're pursuing the types of projects that they want to do. And I think that's sort of the, uh, in some ways it's been kind of the, the good idea that I, or like the direction that I took most from bronze was that um, I was having this conversation with Bronze because it's difficult to find gigs in writing uh, in tabletop, right? Because um, mm -hmm. it's mostly about who you know. Like, it's mostly about networking and stuff. But I also didn't want to, like, go up to people and, like, be like, hey, I'm working with Jasmine. Can you give me a job? Like, that's weird. <laughs> um, I will put Jasmine down as a reference, right? Um, but, like, I'm not going to... Definitely. like try and be like that person because that's <laughs> yep. weird yep. um yeah but um and we had that conversation and and she was just like well you're great at running projects why don't you just run your own thing and i was like great that's a great idea i'll do that and then um i started emailing people and i emailed like 20 freelancers i really wanted to work with and they all said yes and i was like fuck <laughs> okay <laughs> I was expecting who? I was yeah. expecting nobody to respond. Um, <laughs> but M came on as the first person. And um, I was really grateful for M to come on because M coming on and taking a chance on me, um, which I guess was just an estimation of like, A, I was going to, uh, first of all, it was paid work. Um, and I was like, M, here's what, wh let's talk about like pay. I'll bring on for this project. I'm going to be worth, like I was taking my money from start playing games and then putting it into my project to pay for stuff, right? Um, so the additional income or over whatever was paying my bills really went into the project, essentially. Um, so that meant that I was hustling a lot on SPG and filling games and um, trying to like devote my extra additional income to that. And running a project like that can be like incredibly stressful and um, the, it adds another layer of stress uh running your freelancing gigs on start playing right uh because when when games fall apart it's way more stressful when you have people to pay or people that you owe money to right right definitely th that aspect of it really does uh genuinely terrify me uh because uh you and i have spoken in the past about um publishing right and uh you gave me some great advice uh which i genuinely appreciated uh about you know keeping my first project manageable and small and not overstepping and essentially not trying to uh you know go for you know the 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 whole shebang you know um don't do what and, i did right <laughs> don't do what i did like <laughs> like people look at me and they're just like this bitch is rich this bitch is successful <laughs> No. Yeah, that's 60k no. straight to the pocket. <laughs> I am I am paycheck to paycheck like the rest of right. us in this capitalist yep. hellscape. Yeah. Yeah. Um awesome. Well, that's so great. I I love that like you it's a, I feel like it's not the most conventional route to get into all of this, but it's it's so interesting like how that's going to I'm assuming like influence your style and like your story, like what you've taken from bronze, both like professionally, but also personally things that you've taken from your background. Like, I want to hear more about like how theater kind of influences, like what you do these days. Like, what are the things that you think 
have most strongly influenced your design flavor, if you want to call it that, and like the way that you GM and stuff? Uh, okay, so when I first started GMing, I decided to listen to people who were smarter than me and more experienced than me. And I watched all 100 episodes of Running the Game by Matt Colville. Which incredible. You don't yeah. need to watch all 100, but I love them. So, um, and if I ever get to meet Matt, that's that's when I will feel starstruck. I didn't feel starstruck. Like, <laughs> I rarely feel starstruck. But, like, if I met Matt Colville, I would be starstruck. Um, just, like, I don't know. I was at Big Bad Con, and I saw Matt Mercer at the bar, and I was just like, oh, yeah, it's Matt. Okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did that. If I saw the other Matt, I'd just be like, <laughs> Matt, Matt, Matt Colville, let's talk about Let's talk about anything. What do you want to talk about? Let's talk about nerd shit. Like, I would just, I would be so excited to talk to that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I, I tried to listen to, and I think this is a good, this is something that I actually learned um, a lot, in, or well, I think in the military at least. And I have very mixed feelings about uh, my military service now uh, for a good number of reasons. Um, but um, I think that, Humbling yourself enough, especially when you're leading a project, it's very important that you identify like who you are, what you are good at, and you pick people that can complement your strengths and weaknesses and fill in the gaps that you have. And that is exactly what I tried to do when I started running my uh, when I started running the vineyard, um, which is why M was the first person that I tried to get. Because I had some experience working with them. I had hired M as a consultant for a few hours on my homebrew campaign because I just wanted to run a better show. And I was asking M, how do I develop this plot in a certain way? And that's how initially we met before I became the marketer for One Night Struck. And the thing that what I found was after I had an initial experience with somebody, I knew whether or not I was going to work well with them. And I think that's really important for uh, partnering with people. And getting to a place where you're like, okay, we complement each other. There's chemistry here. Um, there's something that we are both bringing to each other. We enjoy working together. And finding those people where things click and you get those sparks of creativity and like things just work together. Well, I think that's probably the, one of the most important things because no person is an island. Like the the issue with some of the old products and some of the old um types of games and media is that they were produced with one perspective and i think that is really just not a best-selling product anymore mm -hmm. um in order to create best-selling products we need a variety of perspectives to come in but also agree on the direction of the project so you need a good team behind you to sail in the same direction rather than just you and your rowboat trying to get where you're going because that doesn't you don't get as far. Um, and it's just like that proverb, you know? Yeah. You want to go fast, you go alone. You want to yeah. you go far, you go together. When finding collaborators, it's also very important to find someone that's going to challenge you. Oh, yeah. Um, and that means that for the most part, if I'm looking for a narrative designer, an art director, or someone who's like a, a partner in, in that, they have a great deal of input. Um, it's the most important thing that you can do to find someone who is going to be able to voice their perspective and you've created a space in which they can feel safe enough to voice their perspective, um, which means that 
you are not engaging in retribution or you're not providing an environment in which they would feel uncomfortable to tell you what's really up. Because if you're not open to criticism, of which we are all um, deserving of, then what's going to happen is they're just going to stop telling you. And then they're going to not work with you. And that's mm -hmm. probably one of those things that happens to a lot of these people that I see. Um, you end up coming out as like, <laughs> I, I don't want to go like down this dark road uh, necessarily all the way, but like, you know, that's honestly, that's how I look at like some of these people that are outed as like abusers or people that nobody wants to work with is like at some point they stopped listening to other people or stopped allowing other people to tell them that they were either wrong or that we could do it a different way and they're not open to new ideas, so on and so forth. But, um, yeah. What yeah. was the question again about? No, <laughs> that's good. I love that. I mean, I think accountability is a big part of that collaboration, right? So it's like, yeah, DJ and I, again, have been running games for years and years and years. I, I know because of that relationship, we've, we've built that safe space for communication and feedback and like, Hey, you ran this, it kind of sucked, honestly, because of these reasons. And this isn't like a personal attack. This is what about it sucked for me because I was hoping to do X, Y, Z. You know, it's like in the the way that we use safety tools these days, that wasn't always a thing, like culturally, you know, even just like five, 10 years ago, that was not a common thing. I know the first time I heard about safety tools as a term, um, just for D&D &D was in reference, I think maybe in like a GM tips or something on Geek and Sundry a while back. And it's like, that was like, oh, wait, we can codify this. This is why I feel unsafe at some tables and in some communities because we didn't talk about this stuff. And there wasn't an opportunity for me to give feedback where it would be received, not perceived as personal attack. Like all that stuff is like, I'm grateful that we are moving in a, as, as a community, moving in a direction where they're, especially for the types of stuff that I'm, I know you're familiar using within Vineyard and your other professional GMing with things. It's like consent at the table is deeply, deeply important for it to be an immersive and fun and safe, expressive space for people to do whatever they want to do and get out of the game what they want to get out. And so I, I guess yeah. my question is like with Vineyard, like, can you pitch to me why, why this, you know, like, was, was this your baby? Um, when I initially pitch the idea and I was putting it together I was thinking like a marketer because that's kind of I have I have a background in like sales and stuff and recruiting but um I was looking at because I wanted it to be a commercial product and I think that's a very different a very important distinction to make like if you're a designer you do need to create something that you're passionate about but at the same time like if you plan to sell it what are you bringing to the table that's different what are you bringing to the table that's unique and uh, is going to push the envelope and is going to create something that people feel like there is an actual need for because you're fulfilling a need ultimately. Right. If you're making a product, right? So the the need that I was fulfilling was all of these adventure book villains fucking suck. Like there's no, <laughs> there's either not enough information, there's not enough to go on. Like I don't know anything except for this paragraph in a picture. And it just Make becomes it sense. like, yeah, right. It becomes like the same three personalities that I run for these games. Mm -hmm. What I wanted to bring to the market was a book dedicated to 
villains. And I wanted a majority of the book, or at least half of the book, to be dedicated towards those villains. And literally 50% of the book is on the villains. So each villain gets 10 to 15 pages in the dossier. Um, so we have like a biography, we have dialogue, we have a layer, we have um, obviously the stat block, and then we have encounters and we have other things um, like tactical advice, role-playing advice for this character, plot hooks, things like that. So, and that, and that's just like for you to go on. And we have 10 of these in the book um, that you can place anywhere. And it's kind of like the opposite approach as many of these campaign and uh, guidebooks and, and setting books is where like everybody's like, oh, the setting. Oh, the yeah. setting is cool. I focused on an organization. The setting is kind of in the background because when I was running these games and I was uh, figuring out what people really stuck around in games for as a pro GM, it was, or just any game really, it was for the character interactions. Right. So why wouldn't I focus all of my effort on making those NPCs really great? Because those are like the things that people remember and care about. They're not going to remember about like the description of the room that you had. You know what I mean? Like nobody really cares about that. Right. Um, and giving GMs more tools to be able to create these really dynamic experiences with these, uh, with these rival characters, with these villains was pretty much like, if you're going to pick up Vineyard for anything, you pick it up for that. Um, there's, there's queerness in it, of course, because I'm making it. So over half of my team is queer, uh, just like over half of my team is uh, BIPOC. So, I mean, like the diversity of perspective is really there. Right. Um, you know, actually I found out the other day because I did a count. Um, but we only have one man in this book. Uh, there's only one masculine vineyard lieutenant, unintentional. Two if you count Ashlyn because they are a shape-shifting gender fluid person. But um, yeah, it's just how it, how yeah. it crumbled, I guess. Um, Honestly, I love that because I feel like in tabletop RPGs in general, um, just like every other subject, men flood everything. And there is not enough representation, especially for villains. Every You open it like, yeah, it might be like some god or something like, but like you open up so many of these books, it's just like, oh, cool. It's this angry guy who... <laughs> power hungry guy yeah oh boy (laughs) or strahd who's literally a predator and it's just like uh (laughs) love that (laughs) yeah i um you know and that's why it was my great joy to be a contributing writer on she's the ancient second edition Uh, i wrote the partners in that um in that uh second edition uh the like the 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 court book dedicates like one paragraph to the partners, the brides or whatever. Um, they're called the partners and she is the ancient because um, it's more of a poly situation, which makes sense. It, it's written like that, but they, there's, a, there's a lot of things in horror and um, that are sort of representative of a lot of the uh, bigotry and like um, sort of the othering of different lifestyles. Like if you look at um, the original Dracula, right? One of the major components of othering Dracula was that Dracula was a queer and is kind of queer coded um, in addition to like the racism and all the other stuff. Right. Um, it's one of those things that what we do in horror a lot of the time is we are making someone a monster because they are different than the, than the standard status quo or like the majority 
or the uh, the white supremacist like structure that we all live in um, in America. So making sure that we are developing stories that speak to all these different perspectives as normative, I think, is the future of these stories and should be because people don't want to engage with stories that they did in the 80s and the 90s anymore. Um, we want art and work that is progressive and that's what art is yeah and like it, it like uh just speaking of the progressive you know arc of a lot of not only just the industry but like the community of it like my own personal piece i remember in early games when i'd start running stuff people would um they'd be you know like a mask individual would come to the table and they'd say yeah i want to play as a femme character and blah blah, blah. and they'd, and i'd be like i don't understand that because I didn't, right? Because that wasn't my journey or experience, and I I had originally like so much uncomfortability with it. I was like, I don't like this at my table because I was dealing with like innate uh, like homophobia and transphobia that I grew up with that I just mm -hmm. didn't understand at the table. But I then saw over the years all these people exploring themselves, as you described for your own journey, like through tabletop, and I found myself as a GM romancing. One of my guy friends as yeah. a femme character and discovering things about myself and learning things yeah. about what this experience can be for people in exploration of gender, exploration of ideology. I've loved like actually going, why is this villain or or evil aligned individual actually doing this? Like that they mm -hmm. they have to have a good reason. They don't believe themselves to be in the wrong. They don't believe that they are this evil thing necessarily at their exceptions of like fiends yeah. and stuff, but like they have a motivation. I, you know, not to get into the, I have a character, but I, I honed in and really fell in love with that. Like other exploration when I played a, um, a cleric of uh, Dendar, the night serpent. And I was like, why would anyone join this cult where they want a serpent to eat the sun. Like mm -hmm. I had to make theology as a person that grew up like studying theology. I was like, I need to make theology for why anyone would want to do this. Yeah. And like, that was tricky, but it was an exploration of like, these people truly believe something different and they believe it wholeheartedly. And it's like, I want to make my villains compelling because they care deeply for their purpose, their goal, whatever it is. And I remember running Strahd for the first time. I was like, this dude's creepy and I don't get him. And I'm trying hard to make him compelling, but I just don't know what to do because the book didn't give it to me. And honestly, I, I'm excited to get into kind of what makes Vineyard special. Like, you know, what when so it comes to my question of like, what do you feel like um, is the biggest mechanical boon to someone's villain development process to like really not only just to role play wise get into the head of that villain, but like in terms of preparation, like how would you say build a villain, make sure you've got X, Y, Z. I think one of the things that you want to do most with your villains um, is first decide what's the story that this villain is trying to tell. What's the perspective that you're trying to represent with that villain? And then you need to base the mechanics on that story. Because if your mechanical output for that villain does not match the type of story that they're trying to tell, then it's just, it's going to fall flat. 
And one of the things that we've done in uh, the vineyard, and I think you could probably see that in both, uh, we have public like Lechismosa and the confessor Estelius on our Kickstarter page. You can just look at our, it's like, a, it's an early draft. There's some mistakes right. in the layouts. Don't, don't judge us. Um, it's if you want problem. a really, yeah, if you want to like a really super polished, yeah. uh, you can check out our intro adventure, the undead gala, which has Lechismosa in it. With the confessor, there's a recharge ability um, in which she puts someone in a confessional booth and they can either uh, choose to, at the beginning of their turn, when they're in that confessional booth restrained, uh, give up a secret and that'll give them advantage on the check that they're about to make. Or they can just take the hit That's and it's awesome. 10, d 10, 10 d 10 psychic damage, which uh, is a lot. So. Yeah. Especially while you're restrained. So it's like a um, way more compelling version of banishment. Right. Exactly. That's that. awesome. And it's like um the 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 way that we are constructing these villains is really to make sure that we are designing each uniquely to represent the story that they're trying to tell. So that when players engage with it, they come away from it thinking this was a really memorable experience. And that's how you want your villains to be. You right. want your villains to be memorable and unique to what they are um, instead of just giving them multi-attack. And like, you know, we, of course, we give all of our villains multi-attack, but like that doesn't fix all of your problem. Um, I will, I will never it, forgive the dissonance of Strahd being such an amazing arcanist and the the architect of working with the dark powers to create vampirism and having like, six spells yeah like Bad he's just a vampire <laughs> he has nothing else give him one, something <laughs> uh one of my favorite things about running strahd is of course i modify i've run five to six strahd games at any given point um as a pro jam it's like half of my income um but the way that i run the countess is uh for the strahd fight which i've run i think five times now um she does a lot of hidden running, but when she shows up the next time, normally she always has greater invisibility cast. Mm -hmm. And then she has immense stealth capability. So normally she gets the advantage of positioning whenever she reapproaches the party. Mm -hmm. And then because she is aware of the layout of the castle, that really is her greatest weapon. And so when people, uh, I had a group, for instance, uh, checking out like an elevator shaft, like they found like a hidden compartment to an elevator shaft, right? So the countess waited until they were like right on the lip, and then she shoved one down the elevator shaft, and then she <laughs> cast, she cast, um, I forget what it's called, but it's that spell where it, um, basically is a jet stream. It's not gust, but it's, I think it's may maybe it is gust. Either way, um, and then it pushed two other people down the elevator shaft, and then the party was split three and three, um, because it was a seventy foot drop or something. And then the party had to make a difficult decision. And that's really the essence of what you want to force out of people within a straw fight and using spells like wall of force, for instance, mm -hmm. um, and separating the party because one wall of force is what won that fight for straw and they TPK because they had a choice where, whether they were going to, because it was cast in a hallway, it split the party uh, two and four. They didn't have Disintegrate because they didn't have a wizard in the party, which was, which is, I guess, their choice uh, in a way. Um, they couldn't get Strahd to fail on the Conte um, when they attacked her. So 
what ended up happening was Strahd left the wall of force up, left for a minute, healed, came back, killed one person because they were split up and the characters had to move around the castle, uh, which takes a lot of preparation, by the way, if yeah. you're a GM to, to quickly <laughs> shift moly. between all those 90 rooms on uh, Ravenloft. Especially but, if they um, haven't like started that encounter in that room. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but yeah, I've got a down pat now. I'm, awesome. <laughs> I'm well versed in Ravenloft. But um, that's the sort of thing that I think is important to consider when you're running villains, even if you're taking a look and you're not doing too much homebrewing. If, you're, if your villain is a wizard, the first thing you should be doing is like building a spell list that fits them. Yeah. And making sure that you're representing like what advantages that they actually do have. Because normally if you're fighting a villain, it's probably in a lair or it's in a way that they are ambushing the party because they're probably outnumbered or uh, something like that. So using these sort of things is, I think, imperative to creating memorable experiences. So you kind of I have a question. Go for it. Oh, I was going to say, uh, so you touched on homebrew a little bit. Um, how do you know when you've crossed the line from casual homebrew into developing a full-on supplement, right? Something that that is going to be, you're like, you know what? This looks great. I think other people would like this. So your question is, when is your homebrew professional? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I think if you listen to James Hake, which James Hake is a great person to listen to, James Hake believes that everyone is a game designer of their GM. And if you think about it like that, and you study the game that you're playing like a craft and like, why does this work this way? Why is the rule constructed in this way? What experience is occurring when I run the game this way? And you start to think like that, then your games are going to get better. And they are really two complementary skill sets. They are not the same skill set, but they are very complementary to each other. Mm -hmm. And if you are modifying anything, you are then a game designer. Mm -hmm. So if you have changed anything and you get the sense like this doesn't feel right for the way that I want to present this fight, like I'm not doing enough damage. Well, then you have just modified the thing and you are now a game designer, right? You gave them an additional attack because they're not doing enough damage, right? And GMs do that all the time. And they should probably. Because if you're going for a particular feeling or like you know that you want to emotionally drive the exhaustion of this combat or how much it costs, then that's what you're doing. So I would say not everything is good game design, but it could be game design if it's homebrew. It's awesome. Yeah, I think that that's definitely where I think both DJ and myself have been in the last couple of years. We're very much aspiring to actually publish something. Finally, we've got our own individual projects that we bounce off of each other a lot right now. But I think it was that point that you're describing where I was like, I've, I've put a lot into this and I believe that there is a unique take on it, which, you know, you said is kind of the core to whether or not you should maybe try and pursue it as a product. I was like, at its core, I think I'm bringing something unique to the table. I, I think I want to get this in front of more people. And like, for me, once I got to that point, it, it got serious, right? Like I was like, okay, I'm, I'm doing this now. I have a bit more purpose and it kind of centralized my design more. It, it, it let me go. That's the thing that makes this worth doing at all. Otherwise I'm just making another supplement that exists in the sea of thousands and thousands of high quality yeah. supplements that maybe do the same thing. 
And so yeah. I think for me, that line was recently crossed, which is kind of why we talked about it as a question. We're like, I think that so many GMs that I've met over the years have something truly unique that they bring from their perspective, from their table, from the games that they've run and have probably already got, let's say, 30% of a worthy supplement developed that they just may need to find what it is that makes that unique and really hunker down and, and produce something with it because it, it's worth getting it out there. Yeah, I think um, if you are uncertain about starting out and you're uncertain about whether or not something is good, I, I would say just fucking put it out there. Post it on itch, show it to a few people, ask them, hey, can you give me some comments? Can you let me know what you think after reading this? Uh, because that's the easiest way to get feedback is like just just show your friends and be like, right, that's a GM and be like, hey, does this look cool? Would you run this? Don't ask them to run it and demand that they run it, but like just have them read it. And most GMs will be able to tell if like they are interested enough to run it. Yeah. On their own. Like you don't have to convince them normally. If you're if what you're designing is great and they're interested in running it, they'll tell you that. When when it comes to like getting into publishing, like I said, that's kind of the part of the journey that at least the two of us are on. But I think a lot of other GMs are they just don't, right? They just sit on that line of things. They're like, I've got a lot of homebrew. I'm probably never gonna do anything with it. Like you're saying you you mentioned getting into itch. I only recently found itch as even being a part of the RPG side of things um, recently, like when I found uh, Gilla Games, we were talking about it before recording, mm -hmm. but huge fan of their stuff. And they do a lot of that playtesting on itch. Previously, I've, I've done a little bit of like indie dev on video games and we've used itch for that. I had no idea that there was such a community over there. So like, would yeah. that be one of your go-to tools for getting into the collaborative like feedback space of, of game design? Yeah, I think it really just starts from ultimately... If you're just starting out, you need to find other people who are also starting out and are interested to work with you. And a lot of that is just you create a thing, you get some feedback. Maybe you find somebody who's also just starting out, who's just a writer or a, a marketer or someone who can create some cover art or do some graphic design or do layout or do some piece of the puzzle that you're not doing. And they just want some experience doing what they're doing and they want to be a part of your project. Yeah. And that's really what I think most people should be shooting for um, is like finding peers to work with and uplifting your peers. Um, I think a lot of people kind of reach out to land it big with, you know, some really well-known people, which can happen maybe. Um, but a majority of people don't come up that way. Majority of people make a few designer friends that they work with in their community. They put out a few things and then they grow enough of a fan base after putting out a few things that when they put out a commercial product, uh, people are interested to buy it. And that gets them a, a start in the right direction. And submitting to contests and submitting your writing samples when it comes up and improving your craft um, to writer calls and stuff like that. Um, one of the best places to really grow and start as a junior designer, as a fresh designer, uh, I should say as an unpublished designer, uh, it's probably a better term because you could have been designing for years and like you just haven't put anything out. Right. Uh, and it turns out like your shit's great and like people just didn't know who you were. Um, but uh, Storytelling Collective uh, is probably the best place for people to go to start developing because it's going to have courses like that are worth the 25 or 
it's like write your first adventure. And it's like step by step, like every single step to publish on DriveThruRPG or DM Skilled. And some okay. of these things really are just like something that you have to show people when you're like, hey, I want to work with you in the future. Mm. Here's something that I've done. Here's a complimentary copy. You can take a look at this and see if you want to work with me, you know? And that's, yeah. that's how most people grow is put out a few things, show it to other people and say, hey, I want to work with you. Yeah. That's it. No, that's great. Because I think the the foot in the door of like, I've I've finished a thing, right? Yeah. Like I can show a finished public piece of something and 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 show it off. Like I think I've ran into that wall before where I, I saw like a job listing that I was wildly unqualified for that I'm like, man, I wish that I even could, right? Like, yeah. but as, so my background's in marketing and graphic design and it's like, the reality is you're not going to land a graphic design job until you have a portfolio. Like just, mm -hmm. you just need to start doing work. Now I'm not ever going to advocate for do free work to, for exposure, but you also just need to do work. <laughs> and so yeah. like, I think that for me realizing I'm not going to make money on stuff like this right out the gate. It's not just going to go right to like heavy publishing, mass appeal, whatever. So I think that the main thing left for us to go over is just like, Anything that you want to talk about, anything you want to push people towards, kind of give you the the mic here. You know, you can talk about how people can support Vineyard, how people can check out your other work, anything you want to point towards. Um, yeah, I guess you could, if you want to, you could pre-order Vineyard RPG. Um, the easiest way to do that, or perhaps the most strategic way to do that, is to go and drive through RPG and just search for the Undead Gala. And there's a $15 coupon in that PDF that you can click on to pre-order Vineyard RPG. So if you want to save a bit of money, right now it's on sale. The Undead Gall is out for 5 bucks. It'll be like 10, just under $10 um, regularly. But you're going to get a $15 coupon. So you can try before you buy, essentially, and if, uh, see if you like it. Um, what we want to get across to most people is like, for the Undead Gala, is like, this is what you can expect from products from my company. This is a sort of storytelling that we do. We want to give you as much, uh, as many tools as possible to run a great game and run a really memorable game. We want to thank Friday so much for joining us. Yeah. Currently, she has the Vineyard, the Undead Gala, which includes, I believe, $15 off your order of the full version of the Vineyard. But not only that, her podcast, Dollars and Dragon, uh, where she, as a paid game master, uh, talks about the world of paid GMing. So thank you. Friday for sitting with, with us. It was a blast. We really appreciate it. Also, guys, check us out on Patreon. Uh, you can see our actual plays of a lot of the games that we demo for this podcast and try out and jump in. Um, you'll also get other exclusive content. So join us over on Patreon. Also, check us out on TikTok. DJ is usually the guy over there. Come say hi. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. And this has been One Shots Tavern. Have a good one.